Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Hi, I'm Josh Ullman for Music Life Radio. Chuck Lindo has spent time in several bands, including The Nukes, Jumbo Shrimp, Dry Spell, Action Slacks, and The American Professionals. He also works in the radio and TV world, creating music and imaging for commercials. I met with Chuck in beautiful downtown San Francisco to ask him a few questions. It's a cool little game My mind plays with me Thoughts come like a hurricane my actions like a breeze The sugar plums dance On all my ships set out to sea But my eyes can't seem to avoid What's on the TV If there aren't any problems I'm sure I can make some If I get a free day I know how to waste one I can be alone I know where to find someone If they're coming to me I can make them go away yeah. It's all I'm gonna do Just fill the spaces between things get into music? I got into music by a couple of different things. It was always around. My mom sang me to sleep all the time. And she was a better singer than she lets on. She's still around. She never considered herself a singer, but she was a great singer. And uh, she would sing my brother and me to sleep. My sisters were a little older. One was, I guess, my oldest sister was, uh, she was 16 when I was born, so she was you know, already in high school. So by the time I was crawling or walking, she was already off to college. So, uh, anyway, so she sang us to sleep, and that, a lot of what she did formed my, I can tell now, like, my idea of how music works, like, what major and minor is, and what uh, phrasing and modulations like she did songs that modulated I know one in particular that was called Go Tell Aunt Rhody it didn't modulate but it went between major and minor Go tell Aunt Rhody Go tell Aunt Rhody Go tell Aunt Rhody the old gray goose is dead 
and then it would on the subsequent verses it would dun dun went to major. It was really cool how it flip flopped. So I guess that taught me early on how to you know crave things being right in that regard. And when she got sick of uh, not sick of it, but she started playing records for us to go to bed because we had been exposed to recorded music. Obviously, really eclectic mix of stuff. And then I really, when I was about four, got insanely into the Beatles because my brother told me I was into the Monkees, and he said, "No, no, no, no. This is the real deal." So here, here's this, and we had an old one of the Rainbow Label Capital uh, Meet the Beatles. So I just played that till it. Wore off, you know, wore down. Which Beatles album was it? Well, it's the American version of With the Beatles, which was Meet the Beatles. The one that eventually got the uh, With the Beatles. There was uh, there were songs in there that were not Meet the Beatles, so that was cool. It's like rediscovering the Beatles again. That was huge because she'd play that when we went to bed, and then Frank Sinatra, and then my sister Nancy was a piano player, and she played the flute as well. So did my other sister Sue. But I would sit next to Nancy on the piano bench when she was playing and practicing. And she loved Cole Porter, so she played all the Cole Porter stuff, all the George Gershwin stuff. And when I was really, really young, and Beethoven, a little bit of Chopin. So I was just four years old, sitting next to her on the piano bench. So that's how it started. That's when I started noticing how things go. And then when did you start playing instruments? Linked around on piano a little when I was a kid. I sang a lot. Uh, I didn't always know I was doing it, but I did. Like, uh, there's some family story. I don't know how true it is, if it's, you know, kind of been augmented by this time or hyperbolized, but... Apparently, I when I before I talk, I was at our neighbor's house, the McWilliams, and just tore into the Star Spangled Banner. It's like kind of phonetically, you know. I was just sort of because yeah. you heard it enough. I was saying it, yeah, because we went to baseball games all the time, and, I, and everyone, according to lore, was just you know agape, like what? I was singing before we talked, before it came down to it, and then. I, Played things on a piano, and I, then eventually uh, there was a guitar around the house, but I never knew what to do with it. I kind of pluck out single note things. This is like from like five or six, and then uh, so like an acoustic guitar. That's yeah. What it was a nylon string, kind of Spanish style that my sister brought brought back from Spain. But I had more fun smashing it. But that was later when I got into the Who because I smashed everything. <laughs> so yeah they were sitting around with Nancy they were plucking things out of the piano and then in fourth grade I wanted to be a drummer I had been playing on my toy box with my heel as on the toy box I would sit on the toy box with my heel as the kick drum and I had chopsticks for sticks and uh you have boxes of pants? <clears throat> I had Revere wear as symbols. Um, you know, the, the stainless steel ones with the little black knobs on them. And then uh, my mom had gotten me a set of bongos for, with S&H green stamps that I used to get when we made any purchase at certain stores. You get these stamps and 
and you can save them up and buy stuff from his catalog. And uh, so I got a set of bongos. They had real skin on them too. It's cool. Um, so the bongos were the toms, and I thought I was doing great. And uh, I really wanted to be a drummer. So when it came time to be in line and at the, uh, we were in one of these kind of like multi-purpose rooms at my grade school in fourth grade, and they had all the people who represented the music companies. Probably was one place that brought instruments for every kid to try out. They spray the antiseptic stuff and uh, spray something in there, and they give you the mouthpiece and play trumpet, or you'd hit a drum. But the drum line was really long, and uh, I, I wanted to wait it out. And then someone called me over and said, "Oh, you know, Charlie, why don't you try out the trumpet?" And I did. And uh, the band director in our school district, Mr. Schmidt had taught my both of my sisters and my brother for a little while so I was around in the band in the band bus from the time I was a baby so I was around him all the time so he was you know, more like a like uncle or something than a, than a teacher his son Chuck Schmidt who wound up playing with, playing with uh, well he's, he did a lot of stuff but his biggest gig uh, was playing with Buddy Rich he was in Buddy Rich's Band, I guess it was like 75 or 76 they referred to as the best band I ever had if you ever seen so I was steered towards the trumpet and I took to it reasonably well I didn't hate it it didn't totally resonate with me but I, you know, I played it and then I went on to junior high and then immediately when I was in junior high they, just, they didn't have enough people for the high school band some reason I can't remember why so they started putting people who came in the 7th grade immediately into the high school band so I played one year of trumpet like that and it was overwhelmed because there were seniors in there and I'm in 7th grade and, and the seniors were asking you hey kid can you hit a high C on that oh no it was very competitive uh, no I, I was pretty much ignored but I did work my way up uh, chair wise pretty well because I was I don't know. I, I liked it. I, you know, I enjoyed doing it. I didn't work really hard at it, but I enjoyed it. And it wasn't very difficult, I thought, especially considering what was expected of us. Like, they didn't have really huge high expectations. Of, uh, what was high school? Yeah. Uh, some guys were really good, though. Anyway, but uh, my tone was always a little dark. And then uh, Mr. Schmidt said in eighth grade, he took me aside and said, you know, I'm kind of thinking you might want to try playing French horn. So I did. And, uh, did you like that more? I really liked it. Yeah, I took to it. But I played it all through high school. And then Mr. Schmidt retired in my junior year. And I left band. But I, you didn't leave music. I didn't need to leave music. I was in choir the whole time, too. Okay. So then I uh, wound up being choir president. School choir? Yeah, school choir. In, uh, in my senior year, I was choir president, which was kind of funny. Because I didn't really give a crap. So then you eventually moved over to... Uh, oh, the rock and roll. That involves Mr. Schmidt, too. Yeah, I started when I went in 8th grade, between 8th and ninth grade. I had been... 7th and 8th grade, I was... Uh, my best friend was Mike Kosmicki, and he fancied the drums a bit, and he played. You know, he, he really worked on it. He didn't have a drum kit. We acquired, or he acquired a really cheap little drum kit and had down his... We lived with his grandma down in the basement, and we would go down there and play the drums. He excelled, and I gotta say, he excelled because he had them at his house, and I always had to leave. I was really jealous, because I couldn't bang on the drums. So, I gravitated towards singing, 
and then picking out a few things on the little keyboard that I had. Uh, and then we got asked by John and Steve Tweehouse, who were, I think, a junior and a senior at the time, to play in their rock band. And I was going to be the singer, and Mike was going to be the drummer. And it was great. So it was, you know, it was the summer of eighth grade going into freshman year. And uh, I did it. And I, I, I got accepted at the Visual and Performing Arts Magnet High School in St. Louis, which was like the fame school. And I went for one day, and I was so upset that I wasn't around all of my other friends that I left and went back to Jennings High School. So I kind of regret that a little bit now, but because uh, I probably progressed got a lot of opportunities. Yeah, yeah, if I really immersed myself in that. But I was, it just was overwhelming for me. I was kind of you know, underdeveloped, a really tiny, tiny kid, and uh, uh, a little bit intimidated by it. It was in the city itself. And they wouldn't let me off campus for lunch. Because I knew that in Jennings, my high school, we had open lunches. I could, you know, walk off, go get a you know, sandwich somewhere or something. My sister, Nancy, or sister Sue, lived about two blocks away from the city school. So I thought, excellent. I'll walk out at lunch, go over to my sister's, make myself a peanut butter and jelly, hang around the house, come back. And they had an armed guard there who stopped me from leaving the campus so that on top of all the other stuff and the really rough bus ride I just called bullshit on it and I wouldn't go back <laughs> so then I went to Jennings and there I was and I was you know singing in the rock band joined choir blah 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 and what was the was did that band have a name? we eventually called ourselves uh, Tactics T-A-C-T-I-X oh yeah it was very uh, classic rock kind of thing. Okay. Mustache rock. Did you guys as I play any um, shows? We did. We played shows. Um, a lot of basement shows. The the, uh, the band was based in John and Steve's mom's basement. And so there was a lot of lava lamps and bubbly sounds of all sorts down there. Uh, black lights uh, so we would have parties we would host parties where we would play and then we did do a couple of, of backyard barbecue type parties and played one thing downtown at the convention center I can't remember it was like a car show or some some kind of the only thing I take away from that is I remember that the guy at the door when he let us in this big big gate you know so we showed up like right on time, you know, with our, with our van, and he said, "Oh yeah, that's one thing that's really important this in this business: punctuality." And I thought he said punctuation for some reason. I don't know why. And I said, "Yeah, and grammar too." <laughs> <laughs> he just let it slide, and then I figured out what he said later. I felt like a doofus, but uh, yeah. And so, uh, so you ended up. At some point, though, changing over to was a guitar or was a bass? Oh, bass! Yeah, John Tweehouse was the bass player, 
And if I'm not mistaken, he joined the military. Pretty sure he did. And then I tried to play bass with the Tactics Band. I don't really remember how far that got. But I bought a bass... Um, I'd gotten a guitar before that. I got, a, I got a Les Paul copy. And then right when I was kind of figuring out how to play it, I had a party over at my house. Somebody thought it was funny to, to turn the lights out at this party. And the guitar was sitting on the couch with its neck against the arm. I heard... And they snapped the neck. So I couldn't... Uh, I tried to fix it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was really young. I think I was like a freshman in high school. And Duct taped and... I just couldn't do it. Glue. I tried to replace it, and some guy sold me one for 75 bucks, and that's about what the guitar cost. Whatever. So, I never got another guitar for a really long time. But I did get a bass, and I got an upside-down, a right-handed Hondo. Okay. Precision bass. So I learned to play bass on that, upside-down. then I wanted to do funk stuff with my thumb. And I was upset that I couldn't upside-down. I kind of could. But it's I just harder to do it because of the knobs, or well, no, because you're the doing the you're doing the the slap with your fingers, and it's not as effective as doing it with your thumb. And you're doing the pop with your thumb. Um, I mean, I could do it still. But Takes a little bit of time. Yeah. To coordinate well, what's those. what's the guy from the Yellow Jackets? He does just fine. Jimmy Hazler. He plays upside down. Quite funky lead when he wants to. Use but when I joined, I joined, uh, or went to audition for Nuclear Ken and the H-Bomb Men. I don't even think we had a name at the time, because uh, I went to see them at the Rosary High School talent show to see if, you know, they are like, come out and see us if you want to play with us, because we don't like our bass player. So I went to see him, and Packy the singer was wearing, uh, like, an army, a short army jacket, paisley pants, and then those uh, really small rectangular, uh, either purple or... Pink sunglasses, like uh, like John Kay from Steppenwolf, and uh, they just played. I think they played uh, Stepping Stone, and they just went totally apeshit mental when they played. And I thought this is good, so I started playing with them, and I was playing the upside down bass, and I thought I can't, I can't move on. So I went and got a a, a real jazz bass left handed jazz bass and retaught myself to play the right way now did you change you change the strings no I, I kept the strings as normal left hand left hand but unfortunately I would already progressed enough guitar that I couldn't go back so I still play guitar upside down you take your left handed guitar and you string it right handed right handed oh yeah so I started playing guitar and when I would write my own songs they were on upside down guitar and I didn't really have any finish but anything I did for my band the Nukes well the Nukes when I went away to college I'd been playing with Nuclear Ken and the H-Bomb Men I guess from like 18 to uh, yeah started at 18 went to junior college in St. Louis for a semester and then left them and they got another bass player and a different drummer too because that drummer actually left as well so they got a new drummer new bass player that we ripped off this other band, or not ripped off, but they acquired. They left the other band to come, but they were sort of the charter members of the other band too, which was really funny. So they they went over and became part of the Nukes. And Packy, the singer, and I always said, "Well, we're going to have the band called Nuclear Can the H Bomb Men." We thought our fan club would be called the Nukes, 
So they just took the nukes as the band name. Yeah. So it was a different band, essentially. Here are the nukes with shades of gray. So we were the nukes in, from 86 or 7, and then we stayed in St. Louis until 91. We were doing really well. We got, we got management, and we wrote a ton of songs, and moved out here at kind of the peak of our draw in St. Louis, which you kiddies out there, here's my one bit of advice. If you happen to live in a city where you're doing really, really well, don't leave it. So the whole band moved out? Yeah, we all moved out here in 91. And Cheryl. And two of our friends who had been in the band Chosen Few that we got the drummer and bass player from. And this is no knock on San Francisco, but at the time, St. Louis was really, really competitive and people were really, really good. And we were a little bit over the funk metal thing. We came out here and like Primus was still kind of the biggest thing. And uh, it was very funk metal. What are you people doing, man? I mean, that's just supposed to be sophisticated. Because we were kind of a punk rock band. Uh, we didn't really hold ourselves as such, but you know, we came to realize, oh crap, we're a punk rock band. Then, upon moving out here, then Green Day started kind of hitting. Operation Ivy had already been going. So we didn't know about all that, necessarily. So we did okay. I mean, but we you know we got some pretty prominent gigs. We got to open up for Fear. So then we did a, uh, a tape, another you know smaller like EP thing, with David Plank uh, producing, and he had engineered on some of the Joe Satriani stuff and uh, a bunch of other stuff. Really good analog engineer, and he loved the band. I met him because. His roommate worked at Tower Records with Cheryl, and I needed somebody to run off some cassettes for me off of a DAT. And I didn't have a DAT player, and he had a DAT player, for obvious reasons. And uh, so he ran off, and he did those. And when I went to pick him up, he's like, dude, you got to make a record. And so he wanted to do it. So we made a demo. It was awesome. Really, really good. Had a great time. And then uh, saved their money. Actually, we had a loan to do a full record with him like a year or so after that and that turned out like I thought gangbusters but I was just kind of growing apart I wasn't I'd never written a song completely on my own after how long you know 
I mean, this five, is ninety four. This is ninety four. So no. eighty six, ninety four. Eight years. Yeah, I had never completed a song on my own, so it was always sort of a collaborative thing. And I'd fallen into kind of being the business guy, and um, you were booking gigs. I was booking shows and doing the financial stuff, and uh, I don't, I don't want to say I got resentful, but I, I felt a little left out of the creative process, and like. Uh, I wasn't able to lobby for my ideas or, or, you know, get behind my ideas enough. So I got resentful then. I was like, okay, because you don't need me then. And I'd already kind of been moving back into a more power pop kind of mentality. I always wanted to have harmonies in the songs. I'm like, oh, there go those damn Chuck harmonies again. Or if I throw in a funky chord, you know, transitional chord of some kind, passing chord. a minor four or something like oh damn Chuck chords again like so eventually <laughs> it's like oh right you okay I maybe don't belong here so I, I stuck it up for a little while and then realized yeah I don't belong here and it was a great split because unfortunately I've been I've been trying to drop hints to them for a really long time about it and they just weren't picking up on it. Like, hey, maybe somebody else should take on the responsibility of some of this stuff. And all the stuff I was doing, I didn't want to like leave them in a lurch. So, when I finally told them, I figured they were fully prepped for it to happen. They weren't. Took them completely by surprise. And I regret that. I was, it was. I could have been much more direct about it, or, or diplomatic about it, and I wasn't. It was very immature of me to do it the way I did it. But anyway, we're all friends now, and that's cool. So when that ended, did you... Was it Dry Spell or the Action Slacks that started up, or was it some other project? Neither. I kind of cleansed my palate by playing bass with people for a while. Played with Pamela Martin, um, with uh, Stephanie Matura, I played on her record. Um, Several other people, and it was a lot of fun because I had... Then I didn't have any responsibility. Then you know, then it was okay. I was just the bass player. If they asked me about something, I'd give an opinion, but it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't my responsibility. It was cool to wear that hat, you know, just being the, the side guy. And although when I was playing with female singer-songwriters, um, this Were you is kind of singing as well. I was singing. I was always singing backup. It's always been something I enjoyed doing. And don't mind being taken advantage of in that regard. Uh, but when I first started playing with Pamela, I, it was just post nukes, and I was really kinetic. And this was very, her stuff is very um, ethereal. Well, I don't want to say totally. It, it's she's kind of a combination of uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Annie Lennox. Sarah McLaughlin with a little something maybe a little bit even more uh, uh, driving in there a um, little bit of rock you know and but it was lighter stuff and I was bouncing around and I still use my SVT for everything and you know <laughs> I was kind of a nut but it worked out well but my bass lines were busy as heck just all over the place. It was so much fun. Uh, I don't think I was... that they weren't subtle and they didn't drive the music, but I was definitely playing a lot. 
And um, that very thing caught the ear of uh, Klaus Fluoride from Dead Kennedys, who had been playing with uh, David Bryan, who was the leader of the five, they were called Five Year Plan. First they were called Blue Movie, but I wasn't out here for that. And then they were Five Year Plan, and David was the songwriter, and Klaus was playing bass with him. It was one of the first things that he did post-Dead Kennedys, and, you know, he plays a lot. You know, he, he likes to play a lot of bass, you know. And he saw me one night at the, at the Above Paradise with Pamela, and it was just the two of us. For some reason, it wound up being just the two of us. We had, like, three songs to play. And... I was only playing the li- bass lines that I played with her stuff all the time, but it was it really stuck out. And he just happened to kind of wander up there and hear it, and it's like, "Ooh, guy plays like me. I like this." <laughs> so not too long after that, he asked me if I would want to play with him in a thing with with uh, with him and Ray, um, a surf band called Jumbo Shrimp, and we. It was uh, it was East Bay Ray Klaus. Those, they were both playing guitar. Then they had John Singer, who also played with David Bryan, and was also uh, in the Zip Code Rapists. I don't remember Zip Code Rapists and a lot of other things. But cool because he's really into power pop, but he's also really uh, out there too. He does. Uh, he enjoys pushing the envelope. And we just sat down and learned absolute cascading gobs of surf music and original music. Ray wrote a bunch of songs. Klaus wrote a bunch of songs. And they're all instrumental. And we practiced, maybe it's twice a week, but it was like four or five hours at a time. And just got insanely tight. I, I... I don't know if I ever put that much condensed effort into something. Uh, it was a blast. It was a really good band. And then I can't totally remember what happened. But I had already started writing my own stuff, and it seemed like maybe it was getting in the way a little bit. That's exactly what it was. And I wasn't... Uh, I didn't have the time to do the whole thing, so I... To do that and then do my own stuff. So my friend Greg Reeves took over playing bass. Then there were some other changes, but um, that's when I started doing the American Confessionals. Okay. And that was about what year? 96, 7. Okay. About. So American Professionals and Dry Spell, because I know I met you in, I think it was 98 and 99 when Left Lamont played with Dry Spell. Right. So how did you end up? playing guitar for them because you're mainly right. doing bass well, I started playing guitar just to do my own stuff Patrick Conway who was the guy who replaced me in Nuclear Can the H-Bomb Man who became the Nukes uh, had moved out here I think in 95 or 6 and he was working at Hyde Street Studios and also over at the plant as an intern my wife Cheryl had been working in music management. They both knew um, Leslie Gerard, who'd been a music manager around here for 
for a while. And Leslie was managing a band that she was going to bring out from Phoenix, Tempe actually. And they were doing well out there, but she thought they needed to be out here to get more exposure. And they agreed to move out, but their guitar player couldn't make it, or they didn't want him, or for one reason or another, they needed a guitar player. Now, I didn't really hold myself as being a guitar player, except for my own stuff, but both Patrick and Cheryl said, you're playing guitar. You're a guitar player. So, suddenly, <laughs> I was a guitar player. And... Uh, that's how I presented myself to them, or was presented to them as a guitar player. And uh, yeah, I had to kind of rise to it a little bit, but it worked out okay. Here is Dry Spell with Honest Engine. great experience. It was kind of short. I think I joined them in 98. Does that sound right to you? Because we had it and right when it was about to come out, 9-11 happened. I remember because our manager, Dan, uh, he was a music attorney that kind of worked at them a little bit before I joined, became a manager. And he was based out of New York. <clears throat> and right about, seriously, I'm... I might be exaggerating, but I think it was the day or two before we put it out, or after we put it out, 9-11 happened. And he was driving into the city the day it happened. Like he was living in Queens, and uh, boom, he saw the whole thing. Uh, so that it kind of uh, upset the apple cart a little bit. And, yeah, it... Uh, there are other factors involved, but I think that was the straw that broke Cam's back. And it just sort of, after that, kind of fizzled out. I don't really remember. So how did the action, How did you get involved with the action slacks? Oh, I, was, I, I met them through... After I left the Nukes, 
Oh, we just went out to Hotel Utah and I saw them. Just completely by accident. Maybe I read something in The Guardian or something. And uh, saw them and thought, wow, they're really doing kind of the thing I like. You know, it was power pop, but not not too cheeky, wink, wink kind of power pop. I met up with them, saw them, said, hey, I really like you guys. This is really cool. I just left my band. If you need a bass player, let me know. I'd love to play with you. Nothing, 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 nothing for like a year. And then Tim just contacted me out of the blue because their bass player had to leave. Asked me to come in and audition for bass, and I did. But I mentioned that I played guitar. And I said, well, we kind of want to get another guitar player. Do you play the keyboard? I, you know, yeah, a little. Or we're kind of looking for somebody to be like the utility man. Play guitar. You sing? Yes, I sing. I became the the other guy, you know, because they wanted to expand their sound a whole lot and include more elements that they could re- record but then be able to reproduce them live. So I not only got to do that, I got to work on the record they had already started doing pre-production for, uh, which I think was Scenes Out of Sight is the one. Yeah. So I'm, on, I'm actually on tracks on Scenes Out of Sight. And then Dry Spell was happening at the time, and I had to make the choice. And uh, Dry Spell seemed on this, you know, we had management and some interest, and I was fully, I guess, invested in a way. Like, I'd co-written a couple things already, and uh, it seemed like a good idea. And I talked to both of them, and I wasn't trying to be, like, Machiavellian or anything, but I, I, I talked to both of them, and I got kind of wooed by both of them, and, and I wasn't accustomed to that, you know? And it just, on paper, it seemed like it was a better idea to stick with dry spells. So after I recorded Scenes Out of Sight, um, they toured without me. They got another guy. So then I went on and kept going on with dry spell. And then that guy didn't work out. So it wasn't until about 2000... It was after 9-11. It was right after 9-11. I remember this. Because Dryspell had already sort of fizzled, or was kind of on its way out. And 9-11 happened. And Action Slikes had a tour booked, opening up for Jay Robbins' band from Jawbox. But his new band was called Burning Airlines. And they were having the worst time post 9-11 with their marquees. This has nothing to do with the guitar player not being able to play the shows. But he couldn't do Seattle and Portland. I think it was Seattle and Portland. And they said, dude, can you pull it together to fly up and do Seattle and Portland? I can do that. So I kind of, you know, put the headphones on and worked on the stuff for a while and flew up and man it I swear to god it was like 9 14 or something cool, so that it, was, it was really quick and and uh airport security was they just did not really have it down yet they were everything was locked down but locked down in a way that wasn't very specific like it's like no well come on okay fine like, it wasn't, they didn't really know what they were doing yet. And it, it really screwed them up that I had a pedal board. And I wanted to carry it on. And 
No, I think I checked it. But, it, you know, it basically looks like a bomb. Right, <laughs> of course. It's just cables and uh, little tiny transformers or whatever. It's all these kind of coiled copper and stuff all over the place. And uh, so, yeah, I remember having to sit there with them about that. They pulled it out and brought me over. What is this? What's this do? What's that do? What's this do? And there was one guy who said, I know what this is. This is these are effects. These are effects. See? You do this one. This one makes it sound like this. So he, he saved me. He, he stepped in and, uh, and got it through. And I made it on time. That was cool. Played the shows. And then I guess I stayed at that point. And uh, they were getting ready to do a new record. So we started working on the songs for that. And then Dry Spell, like I said, had already just sort of imploded. Nothing nasty. It just kind of stopped being. And at some point you actually joined, after I left, left out Luant. Oh yeah, and this is all right about the same time. So that would have been early 2002. Yeah, I was working on my record, on the first Ampro's record, playing with Action Slacks. I had this idea. I wanted to have three things going, where I was working in a different capacity in each project, yet they would somehow leapfrog. So one would be in pre-production, the other would be recording, which are two different mindsets. The other one would be traveling while the other one was doing this, you know, when it was down and whatever. It was looked like it was going to work perfectly. And it would have made me so happy because it would be really busy and using different parts of my brain for each thing. One, I'm, I'm completely just submitting myself to the whims of whatever it is. One, I'm participating but collaborating. And then the other one, it's all me. So kick ass, right? Sounds great. Uh, but then they all wound up jamming together because something didn't come out the gate when it was supposed to or whatever. It was my immaturity for thinking that it was all going to work out exactly like they intended. Playing with Left Out in the Mont, I was just the guy who played guitar. Fun. Parts were already written. Show up. No responsibility. Play guitar. Uh, action slides. Collaborate on stuff. You know, and... and play guitar, play keys, which I didn't do much of the other stuff, and sing, uh, but ultimately it came down to this group consensus about how things were going to go. And then my own record I was making was just me. Wrote everything, played everything, and it just got all screwed up. And I didn't, the first thing that had to go was left out in the mind, because I couldn't, you know, it was the one that was most peripheral for me, and I couldn't, I didn't want to screw them up. So I thought, I just... Sorry, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna phone this in for you. you know? Action Slacks wound up taking a whole lot of the summer during pre-production for the next record. I had finished mine. Mine was in the can, and then worked with them all summer long before I moved to LA. It was the summer, I guess, of 2003. And every weekend, all weekend, Tim came up from LA. We went over to our rehearsal space in Emeryville and worked on songs and recorded the whole album, basically, before we recorded it again. Here are the Action Slacks with Us Weekly. Shuffling along in the checkout line Staring at symptoms of our decline The woman behind me says, can you believe Mariah got married after only six weeks I said, I won't stop, I won't stare 
You have mistaken me for someone who cares, she said. It's all over the skin deep town, but I could not care less if I was underground. I won't stand. You have mistaken me for someone who cares. She said it's all over the skin deep town, but I could not care less if I was underground. And uh, how did you end up um, moving from that into writing for the TV spots? And oh, okay. So I guess as soon as all that dust settled. And I was in LA, and then my records came. Yeah. And which records? This is the, this is the uh, faking it. Okay, which was, came out in two thousand and four. And I was in Los Angeles, and American professional had had the record made, ready to go. Got it out to people. Got it on all the iTunes and whatever. And um, started hanging out on the uh, Power Pop blogs a little bit more. Somebody. Actually, I wasn't hanging out. Somebody started talking about me on one of these Power Pop blogs I didn't know about. I just sent it out to a bunch of people. And uh, we played at the International Pop Overthrow Festival, which uh, I think started in, like, 2000. So this is the 2004 or five one. And uh, played our first show as a band in L.A. with the guitar player Mike and that... And, uh, David Bash, the guy who puts the International Pop Overthrow on IPO. Um, when he likes something, he tends to be really vocal about it. He liked our record. And uh, so it gets out to all these people in this chat room thing. And uh, it got out to other people and other people and other people and other people. And um, I got a call from a guy from MTV. Or Nickelodeon, actually, but their MTV network, and I said, "Do you want to uh, do a license agreement for Zoe One Hundred and One, which was Britney Spears' sister's show, and Drake and Josh, which I can't remember uh, what the pedigree of those guys was before they got on it, but Drake and Josh, Drake, uh, Drake Bell and Josh, or Josh Bell, anyway." So, pretty big shows in Nickelodeon. I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, fine. But I had all the stuff on ASCAP, you know, ASCAP member. And he said, there'll be no money up front, you know. Okay. This is blanket license, spec license. And I thought nothing of it. And what the hell? I had some lawyer friends look at the contract. Sent it back. Didn't think about it at all. And I had already written a theme song for... The American Professionals as a band, um, just as a joke. I thought well, I've always tried tried to portray us as being sort of this faceless corporate entity, and uh, so I wrote a theme song for it. The American Professionals. We make- 
Cheryl worked in at CBS Radio in LA, and this guy Barry Funkhauser, who was working in production, heard the theme song, and we said, "Wait a minute, can he do this kind of stuff on uh, on command?" And of course, Cheryl, being ever supportive and inspirational, said, "Sure he can." <laughs> so. Uh, they had me he passed me on to the creative director there Rich Burner and he said hey man can you do I'll give you some money if you can come up with they were about to flip uh, formats because Howard Stern was moving to Sirius and that was going to you know cripple all those stations so they became this thing called Free FM uh, all the affiliates became free FM I mean you didn't have to pay for it you know like, like you did with Sirius they needed imaging but not imaging in the classic sense like you know not, not that kind of thing they wanted songs like real imaging songs I thought, well hell yeah I can do that fine and it was challenging as nobody's business like I need Five of these, he did them, I think, in five increments. You know, like, I mean, five things. I want one kind of like this, 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 and this, and then he left the rest up to me. And I bounced them off, and, and, uh, and what What is your process in, in making these spots? Radio? And I don't know. You don't want to know how sausage is made, man. I don't know. <laughs> no, I didn't know. Now I know more, but then I didn't. It was just, it was just this sort of combination of desperation and hubris, I guess. And, uh, like, I know I can do this, and then I thought, crap, no, I can't. And then I had to do it, because I agreed to do it. Um, I agreed to do it out of hubris and finished it out of desperation. Uh, and it really, it tested me. You know, How is that writing process different from writing music for your band? Well, it was an assignment. I liked it. Like I needed it a little bit harder, and I had input from somebody too. Like I would send him stuff. It was like having a, a producer and a label at the same time. I would pump out what he thought was right, or what I thought was right, and then he'd give me notes. And apparently, this is how advertising works all the time. I didn't know it, but it was really great exercise and really condensed and really quick. But I had no reference for it. But I really loved the process. Whereas music, you know, you're just trying to show your personal refraction of the human condition. It allowed me to do two different things at once that were very... They're both music-oriented, but they could, they're night and day to each other. Like, one's an assignment, and one is uh, supposedly what I'm feeling at the moment. I love flip-flopping between the two, because one, when you're supposed to be doing one and you do the other, you feel like you're getting away with something, and you're being naughty. So often the, uh, the the best stuff comes from when I'm supposed to be doing something else. And I take the opportunity to do something in the other direction. What kind of time goes into the TV spots? Surprisingly fast. When, when people know what they want and we're able to talk and hit it off on a level uh, that we can decide on things quickly and then we can we can speak a common language and they understand that 
we're going to execute exactly what we just spoke about, it can go lightning fast. Generally, it's the initial spark. You know, like you, you talk and then you execute something that you think it's what they're talking about. And there's then it hangs in the air while they're deciding if that's what they were talking about. You, know, you get the email or the call. Or like, sometimes it'll happen that they will say their complaints first and then say, but you know what, you are totally in the right direction. Uh, I, I, I love this kind of thing. I really do. I, I'm not going to... Uh, kid around about it. I mean, I just, I just love doing it. Even when it's at its most hair-pulling and uh, seeming like there's just no horizon, you cannot envision the conclusion. And nothing good is ever going to come out of this. And then somehow, I don't know how, and I didn't want to think about it, something rises out of it and you make it work, and then it's just somehow the essence of what you were both thinking, and, and then it just goes like, what? Grease lightning. Did you have any Problems in doing commercial spots. That's the difference from doing your supposed creative music is you can't be offended by people's input. You're just trying to figure out what they want. Can you tell me about one that was really difficult? Yeah, I have one. It was a uh, a personal injury lawyer, and he was a I think he was an ex-marine and he was ex-military. He had this idea, and we were working through an agency. So we dealt with both him and the guy from the agency. And he had this idea that he wanted his phone number and his name, it was basically his phone number, said at the end of it in this really authoritative manner. And he kept calling it the voice of God. We've all heard people saying the voice of God. There's always that announcer, you know, do, 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 da, da. He kept insisting he wanted it sung. His phone number. His phone number, he wanted it sung. Blue doo doo doo. But the end was supposed to be like a call to action. Like you have to. Commanding that you call me. We went through voiceover people, we went through singers. We even got we got his deposit, that's the thing. So we were working with him. We got his fifty percent deposit. We went so far as to employ a very prominent gospel bass and did just a rafter vibrating job of it and uh, the guy said no that's not what I mean we got a voiceover guy in the room we are on Skype with this guy or ISDN or something saying do you want this 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 it was that far we got down to this this that you want this you want that you want this and he signed off on it and said yeah okay that's great let's do it next day didn't like it so eventually we just had to this went on for months man and it was it really upset me because he just had this thing as his his agent said the guy's got a stick in his craw and just can't get it out and he we eventually said basically he wants a purple cow you know purple cow here's my money make a purple cow cows aren't purple uh I'm paying I want a purple cow you use uh, other talent. We do, yeah. Not too often. We do most of the stuff we can. We you know, try to do it as much in-house as we can. We have uh, several female singers we use. A few other male singers. 
I try to cover most of the male stuff. What does music mean to you? I like it's how universal it is. Uh, it's sort of, it almost, I'm not totally sure, but I think it predates language, doesn't it? If not, it, it, it's, a, it's another uh, facet to language that... Because uh, it depends on the language. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's it's a uh, it, it's universal. Like there's certain things about music that will that somehow appeal to things in the brain that uh, transcend individual languages. I, I I think that it's just so visceral and so open to uh, interpretation, but also has. Um, some rules that we all adhere to as well. So it's a lot of fun to combine that that with language. You know, that's why I think pop music is so powerful. But then opera is too, because that's language and music. And so is jazz. But um, pop music appeals to me because it seems so innocuous, but um, I think it has a tremendous effect on people. Uh, it does me. I mean, I, you know. There are days when, um, and I don't know what the what the circumstances are or why. I can't really kind of uh, summon it up or anything. But there's some days when I'm just so in tune to things that uh, I hear a particular song, even one I haven't heard before, and it just like stops me in my tracks and that causes me to reassess like seemingly everything right there and that you know in that moment just because of someone's take on something and how adeptly they put it with music uh, yeah that just thrills me to know it I mean I've never gotten jaded in that regard are there any particular songs I mean or artists that really do it for you no particular one I, 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 I go to certain people for certain things like uh, like Blood on the Tracks I can't casually listen to Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan because it's so deep and so good like you can't just put it on to exercise or something you, know, you gotta be in the mind to sit down and listen to Blood on the Tracks or at least half of it, you know. It's a commitment. Um, but every time I do, I just come away with something new. Like, I've been hearing that record for I don't know how long. And every time I hear it, I'm a little further on down the line than the first time I heard it. And so you see all these little lines of references, uh, or things that reference things I just was not privy to at a certain age when I first heard it so it keeps evolving for me you know it's just because he just kind of went in there and just dredged it up and went there you go now deal with it you know and so (laughs) so thank God that he did that and some of the Paul Simon stuff too like because whereas Bob Dylan was really haphazard sometimes about the way he recorded and wanted it to be really spontaneous and loose, at least for the, the actual playing of it, not the arrangements and the 
songs themselves, but uh, and Paul Simon was completely passionate and also scientific and, and uh, really meticulous about his stuff, and it shows. And, and, and it works too, you know. In the same way, in the same way, it works. It still has the same effect on me. Um, what are you? What are you working on right now? Oh, we're in pre-production for the next Ampros record. What does being an American professional mean to you? Because it's your band. I mean, this, this yeah, is it, it is. Stuff. Well, this this time around, this incarnation, I. I really wanted to not have it just be all about me. So when we got Steve, our drummer, and Cheryl was playing bass, um, we decided we'd work much more as a band. So it wasn't uh, just what I say goes and you play what I say. So it's far more collaborative now. I mean, beyond collaborative, I mean, Cheryl's written... On the next recording, I think four of however many songs it winds up being on it, four of the eight or nine are are hers. And on top of that, anything that I've come up with since I've been playing with those two, they've been directly involved with. So nothing has been just anybody coming in and saying, you play this, you play that, you play this. Here's my song, yeah, which is the way I've always worked. Post nukes, yeah, it's whatever I thought was going to happen, and just play it like that, and there you go. So yeah, it's it's very collaborative, and so I'm excited. I want to get this one under our belts and uh, move on to the next one. Well, we will exploit the shit out of this because it's going to be really good. But so you guys were a four piece at one point. We were a four piece, and then Mike, our guitar player got a job offer to move to New Zealand he's an animator we met him in LA in 2004 he played that first uh, International Pop Overthrow festival show with us he was in the band and then the day after that show I guess it was 2004 day after that show he said oh I got a job to work with Peter Jackson on King Kong and that means I'm moving to New Zealand. So then he came back, and he moved to San Francisco. We were we were still in LA, and uh, we always fantasized that you know we moved back up here for some reason, which we weren't really planning on doing. We would play together again. And lo and behold, Cheryl got a job with Current TV in 2007. So we came up and immediately started playing with Mike. And um, that was going great. Klaus was playing bass. I had this idea that it wasn't going to be the American professionals anymore. I was going to find people who all had their own songs and we'd have a whole new band and uh, start fresh. Cheryl was working her ass off at Current, so she didn't have any time to play. So Klaus Floride was playing bass, I was playing guitar, Mike was playing guitar, and we got put out a Craigslist ad for a drummer and got Steve Moriarty and it turned out he played for the Gets uh, in Seattle. I don't know if you know about the whole Gets story, but tragic story. We can go into that some other time, but he'd been through the ringer. And uh, 
just a really super sweet guy and really great drummer and hadn't done anything that he could really sink his teeth into for quite a while. So we started playing. It went over really well, uh, but it turned out that Steve didn't really have any songs at that point. Klaus really didn't have too many. Mike had a few and was coming up with more, but it, we wound up being the American professionals again. I wasn't really expecting that. So I had already named the uh, commercial music house the American Professionals, thinking I wasn't going to use it as a band name again. But we did, so it became a little bit a little confusing, and still is. And then Klaus was busy doing other stuff, so I felt like we were kind of spreading him a little bit too thin. So then... Cheryl left current and started working at a job that was much less taxing so she slid right back into playing bass and then started writing songs again too and then Mike moved back to New Zealand anyway but he moved yeah he got a job offer and just had to take it so it was just three of us and instead of filling in the space we decided to stay a three piece like I immediately started playing bigger Cheryl played bigger too yeah and it, it yeah, it's really, it's much easier to be spontaneous, too. If, if I mean, the songs are pretty well worked out, but it does help that if we want to change things on the spot live, that uh, there's one less person that we have to communicate that, too, you know. But that's not to knock it. We work, we're working pretty well as a four-piece, too. But uh, rather than add some new person in there, it's always better to just kind of run with the three we had. Uh, How did you come up with that name? My friend David Reedy with whom I played in the Pamela Martin band and we became great friends. And then he started playing with me and helping me with my songs when I was first writing my own stuff on my own. And uh, we were doing a, a Pamela show one time and he had gone out and gotten, over a period of time, all the stuff that he wanted. He was a big uh, Albert Lee and Mark Knopfler fan. So we, I think he had an Albert Lee, we had a Music Man silhouette when they were really good. And, and he had a Mesa Boogie Mark IV combo. We had his Taylor 810 and one more spare guitar, I can't remember what it was. He had his white towel, he had his bottled water, he had his slide. It's a tuner and it was a rack tuner, so one looks like a Cylon. Um, all this stuff, you know, set up on stage. Can't remember where we were playing. He's an Irish guy. But he had become an American citizen. He said, Chuck, take a look at that over there. That is the American professional setup. <laughs> and, uh, it just stuck. You know, like, it became this ideal. Like, well, how would you do it? Well, think to yourself, how would the American professional do that? So, eventually, it just became such a part of the vernacular that... Uh, that was like... Yeah, we had to be the band name. So, when he started playing with me, when I did my own stuff, uh, it was the American professionals. And then we came up with the slogan, we make it our business to be the very best. So you couldn't tell if we were plumbers or a pharmaceutical company or name it, you know, a paramilitary group or whatever. We're the American professionals. 
What do you do? Make our business to be the very best. Of course. Could there be any other way? I'd like to thank my guest, Chuck Lindo. We're going to leave you with one more track. This is The American Professionals with The Specialist. I'm Josh Almond for Music Life Radio. I can't be left alone. I can't be left alone. Keep your eyes on me. Don't let me be alone. Don't let me be alone. Keep your eyes on me. Special thanks to Josh Allman for bringing us this episode of Music Life Radio, American Professional, featuring Chuck Lindo. Thanks for checking out Music Life Radio, and we'll catch you next time. The American Professionals We make it our business to be the very best What is your process in making these spots? I don't know. You don't want to know how sausage is made, man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>